there are a lot of people who make a lot of predictions about a lot of different things. Weathermen predict the rain or non-rain. They get it wrong sometimes, don't they? Um, I wanted to read some predictions that people have made over time. You know, prognostications. Everybody say prognosticate. Don't you feel better? All right, here's one. Frank Knox was the U.S. Secretary of the Navy on December 4th, 1941, and he made this statement. Whatever happens, the U.S. Navy is not going to be caught napping. Pearl Harbor, a few days later. Economist Irving Fisher, on October 16th, 1929, he wrote, he said, Stocks have reached what looks like a permanently high plateau. (laughs) You'll appreciate this one. Thomas Watson, who was then IBM chairman in 1943, made this statement. I think there is a world market for maybe five computers. (laughs) Now you think about that. Five computers in the world. That was what he saw, 1943. And Decca Records, rejecting a request for a recording contract in 1962... For a group known as the Beatles said this, we don't like their sound. Groups of guitars are on the way out. (laughs) They got it wrong. Uh, Not every prediction is wrong, uh, but most predictions are guesses at best. For instance, I predict tonight. That the Dallas Cowboys will beat the Washington Redskins. Remember last year I had to wear a jersey, right? It won't happen this year, I predict. It's it's a guess. It's a guessing game. Lots of things can happen. But when Jesus predicts things, it's not a guess. It is a statement of fact. It is a clear vision, an understanding, and even a mapping out of future reality. Jesus makes no mistakes in his predictions. However, it is interesting that when he talks about the end of time, he predicts nothing. He'll tell you certain things about the end time, but he will not tell you the the season or the moment of his return. In fact, in this passage that we're going to look at today, Mark chapter 13, Jesus goes through this, this whole journey of describing in very general details what the end of time will look like. But he even acknowledges here in Mark 13 that he does not know the time or the season for his own return. That only God the Father has known that, which is an amazing statement. Because here is Jesus, who obviously is God, but has limited himself in his humanity so that he does not know the moment of his return. He said the same thing in the first chapter of Acts. 
So today, what we need to hear, uh, in part, is stop trying to play the timeline game when it comes to the end of time. It's not important. But there is something extremely important about the end and how it relates to us as Christ's followers and as the church. See, Jesus began this, uh, this Olivet Discourse. This was one of his statements that, uh, uh, one of the teachings that he gave as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. What I want us to do is I want us to journey through this chapter together, and I'm not going to go through a timeline. There are plenty of timelines out there. I have a few of my own, uh, but I'm not going to go through a timeline. I'm just going to kind of do what Jesus did. Let's begin in verse 1 of Mark chapter 13. Scripture says that as Jesus went out of the temple... One of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. All right, let's stop right there. And in the margin, put 70 A.D. In the margin, put 70 A.D. Jesus was predicting the destruction of the temple in that moment, in, in that In that verse, he was telling them there's going to be a day that this city and especially this temple will be destroyed. And sure enough, in 70 AD, that's exactly what happened. The temple was destroyed. And and, and so the people that were with him, his disciples, they heard that. And let's look at verse 5. It says, Uh, Verse 3, now as they sat sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked Jesus privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? So they said, all right, Jesus, you're saying that the temple's going to be destroyed. Tell us about that. Help us understand. All right. So Jesus answers and says, take heed. Everybody underline, take heed. That's an important word. In fact, there are three important words, uh, commands that Jesus gives throughout this passage. Take heed is one of them. Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. Uh, But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be troubled. For such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places and there will be uh, famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. But watch out, underline watch out. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached To all the nations, you probably ought to underline verse 10. Verse 11, but when they arrest you and deliver you up, don't worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak, but whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now, brother, will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all For my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. And Jesus, in verses 5 through 13, he's talking about the tough times 
that are going to hit, but these tough times are not the end yet. They're only the beginning of sorrows. In fact, I would suggest to you that the world is in the tough times of verses 5 through 13. I would even suggest that the world has been in the tough times of verses 5 through 13 since the death and resurrection of Jesus. See, verses 5 through 13 describe the general uh, calamity and chaos that has taken place in our world. Uh, There are specific um, uh, calamities that Jesus describes, these false heroes that offer up a false hope. They're deceivers. They, They will not give what they deliver. We have had many of these false heroes who have uh, promised a false hope and did not deliver. He talks about earthquakes and famines and general troubles of, of, of a general nature. We have seen earthquakes, have we not? And famines, definitely. And general troubles. Some would suggest that we're in the midst of one of those general troubles even today uh, in America in the political landscape and the social and economic landscape. They would say we're in one of those troubles. And I would say maybe a first world problem, but it is certainly a trouble to us. Uh, we look and, and we see that there are other things that, that Jesus describes. He says, okay, during this time, this season, that is the precursor to the end, uh, uh, there will be uh, wars and rumors of wars. Have we heard that? Wars and rumors of wars. There, there will be kingdoms that rise up against kingdoms and general political and national and geopolitical uh, unrest. Have we seen that over time? Um, but then he goes and he talks about persecution. And this is where we kind of uh, fade from the scene. You see, the persecution that Jesus talks about is where uh, some uh, official, government official, will walk through the back door there And because I'm saying uh, that Jesus is the only way to God and that the only uh, truth that you can embrace uh, that is real truth is God's truth. And and, uh, when I say that there is but uh, one truth and not a multiplicity of truths as it relates to to, uh, who God is and, and what he desires from us, because I'm preaching this gospel... Uh, there will be a government official who walk through that back door. He'll come down here and he'll slap me in cuffs and he'll take me in and he'll lead me before a judge. And that judge will uh, say, don't ever speak this name again. And I will then be fined. And if I do it again, then I will be beaten. And eventually there'll come a day where I will be killed. Now, we do not face this kind of persecution in America. You've heard me, if you've been here for any period of time, Uh, You hear me say this. uh, We in America do not face persecution for our belief in Jesus Christ. We do not. We are not persecuted. Somebody telling me that I cannot do something is not persecution. Persecution is when they beat you because you do it. Persecution is where they bribe your son or your father or your brother or your sister to turn you in and then you'll be killed for what you believe. That's persecution. Now, we have not faced that in America. We have not seen that. But you go to other parts of the world and guess what? It's there. 
We have friends who just had to leave the country in which they were living because they preached the gospel and it became dangerous for them to be there. This is, this is the world in which we live. Now, not in America, but it is certainly a reality elsewhere. And so we see that, that uh, uh, this idea of, of uh, political unrest and, and geopolitical unrest and wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and general troubles as well as persecution for believing on Jesus... We're facing that today. And that is part of our world. So these are signs, but they're not really signs yet. They're, they're just indicators that, yes, we're on a track and, and, and it's going to get worse. See, it's not going to get better than it is today. It's going to get worse. As we look at this passage, Jesus moves from the tough times and he says, now let me tell you about the end. Go to verse 14. In verse 14, Jesus says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight... Pardon? <laughs> Pray that your flight might not be in winter, for in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor shall ever be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, don't believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will rise up, show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I have told you all things beforehand. So here are the signs of the end, and you want to know the sign that you need to look for. Okay, here's the sign you need to look for. When the temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem, you know you're getting closer. When the temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem, it's not there right now. But when it is rebuilt in Jerusalem, you know you're getting closer. And once the temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem, there will uh, arise in our world a hero that will make wonderful, do wonderful things. And the world will say, that is our hero. And he will put up a statue of himself in the temple in Jerusalem. And that is the abomination which causes desolation. Now, let me just give you fair warning. I am a very literalist when it comes to the end time prophecy type stuff. So what I'm doing right now is I'm taking Daniel chapter, uh, Daniel chapter 9, I think, verses 22 through 24, and I'm being very literal with it. Um, so I think there is literally going to be a hero, and there is literally going to be a statue, an idol, that is erected in the temple, and it happens sometime in the future. Um, and, and so here's how you know that we're getting closer. You've got to have a temple in Jerusalem. There has to be a hero that has solved world problems, and he has to be so maniacally egotistical, narcissistic, and, and other things. Maniacal is probably the right word, that he sets up an idol of himself in the temple in Jerusalem so that people will wor worship him and pay homage to him. 
When that happens, run. I mean, run. Flee. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, boy, pray that it's not in winter. Because that would be a rough time to run, but you need to run. Don't stop inside the house to get an extra change of clothes. Just get out. Run for the hills. Because it's getting ready to get really, really bad. This is called the Great Tribulation. During the Great Tribulation, it is a, it is a, a persecution. It is horror that we have never, ever, ever seen in the world today. Now imagine that. Imagine the worst horror, horrors that you've ever seen or even ever heard of. And the Great Tribulation is far worse than that. This is how we know that the end has come. And it's in these darkest days, the darkest days of all human history, that Christ returns. Look at verse uh, 24. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will, uh, will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest uh, part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. So Jesus is saying there will be a day when the world is at its darkest moment, when the Son of Man will appear in the sky with the trumpet resounding in the sky, declaring his coming. It will be cataclysmic, it will be earth-shaking, and it will not be silent. Jesus will come riding the clouds uh, with great glory and power, and all will see his appearing. Jesus is coming again. So the question is, so what? So what? What does that matter to you or to me or to this church? Jesus is coming again. Now, for some of us, it's, it's Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. You know, please let me escape all the troubles in my life. And, and that's about as close as we get to so what? Oh, just uh, Calgon, take me away type concept. Y'all remember Calgon, take me away? Okay. But friends, that's not, that's not why Jesus is speaking this story. That's not why he's giving us this teaching so that we can see that there will be a day when we escape. Now, there is that promise and there is that hope and we rejoice in that, but that's not the purpose of this passage. Jesus is teaching us a better way for life, a better way to live. He's teaching us something about ourselves and something about our here and now as we look forward into the future. You want to know what Jesus is teaching us? He's teaching us to stand watch. Jesus said, take heed, stand watch. Take heed, stand watch. Be watchful, wake up. There are these commands throughout the 37 verses of Mark chapter 13. There are three words that simply, uh, some translate watch, watch, watch. But there are three different words and they all mean different things. One word simply means to... Uh, to, to open your eyes and see. 
to open your eyes and, and feel the urgency that people around you are facing. Jesus was talking to disciples and he said to them, hey, this generation is going to face the troubles of verses 5 through 13. He said, there's going to be a day when you are facing the, the, the troubles that I'm describing in verses 5 through 13. And haven't we all experienced some of the troubles that he describes in verses 5 through 13? Some of them are internal chaos. Some of it's external chaos. Some of it's circumstances out of our control. Some of it's just pain. Some of it's just misery. Uh, some of it is, is uh, uh, injustice. But, but we are facing those, those struggles. And so Jesus says to us today, open your eyes and see. Not see the chaos that's on my life, but see the chaos that's on the people's lives around you. Don't be caught and captured in navel-gazing Christianity that only looks at yourself and thinks only about yourself. Jesus is speaking to these disciples not so that they would look more closely at their navel and be more narcissistic. He was speaking this so that they would wake up, which is the second verb that he uses when it comes to standing watch. One means to open your eyes and see. The other one means to be awake. Y'all know the term lollygagging? Do you, do you know? I mean, I, I'm, I'm not, it's cute, but I'm not really trying to be funny. Y'all know lollygagging. I was trying to think of a word to describe the exact opposite of what Jesus wants us to be. And I thought of a lot of words, but lollygagging seemed to me to be the word that I needed to use. See, here's what happens to us. We get cool, cozy, and comfortable. And we think that the world revolves around us. And we lollygag. The most important thing for us is to sit in our seats. Some of y'all are shaking it up a little bit, sitting in different seats. It's really bugging me, by the way, <laughs> irritating. But there are some standbys that always sit the same place, and I'm so thankful for that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Jody Luck, thank you. I, no, I, truth is, we, most important thing us find our seat, sit in our seat. Listen to what we want to listen to. Ignore what we don't want to listen to. Get up, walk out, go have lunch. Everything's fine. Nothing's changed. And we're lollygagging. I think as a church, we lollygag. And we're busy lollygagging. I mean, we're real busy lollygagging. And we got activities for every person here in the church to do 24-7, but... We're still lollygagging. You don't want to know what Jesus wants us to hear. He wants us to hear that it's time to wake up and stop lollygagging. He wants us to feel an urgency. To wake up in the morning with sweat on our brow thinking, Oh my soul, Jesus is coming. It's time to get busy. Doing what's important to him. Stand watch. You want to know what it really means? The third meaning? It means to be diligent, vigilant about God's business. Not my business, not your business, but God's business. He's coming. It's time to be urgent. As we look at this passage, Jesus breaks it down for the disciples, and he, he doesn't want them to be left with this idea of this, 
this timeline concept. He, he wants them to be changed. He wants them to become urgent. He wants the, the truth of the second coming to sink down into their hearts so that they live different lives. And oh my God, may that happen to us today. That the truth of the second coming would sink down into our hearts and we would live different lives. What does that different life look like? Well, first, it means we're going to share the gospel. It means we're going to share the gospel. Jesus says here in verse, verse, uh, verse 10 that the gospel has to be preached to all the nations before the end comes. He says in verse 11 that, uh, that when we are in the midst of our own trauma, our own drama, our own conflict, when we're standing before people and maybe they're judging us harshly or maybe they're condemning us or maybe even persecuting us, in that moment, you know what your job is? Share the gospel. I'm here to give a testimony. Some of us, do you know what our testimony is? You want to know what our elevator story is? Doomed despair and agony on me, deep, dark depression, excessive misery. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Doomed despair and agony on me. And we sing that over and over and over and over and over and over again. And look, I understand it the first time. I might even understand it the second time. But heaven, help us. If you're in the midst of a, con a conflict, a chaotic moment, if your circumstances stink, then understand God planted you there for a purpose. And that purpose was to give witness and testimony to His glory, His goodness, and His grace. Amen. Today, we need to share the gospel. When was the last time you shared the gospel? Do you realize this is our job? I mean, it's your job. And it's mine. When's the last time you shared the gospel? When's the last time you told somebody your story of how Jesus changed your life and gave them the opportunity to hear that Jesus loved them enough to change their life too? When was the last time you shared the gospel? It's time for us to feel the blaze of urgency burning in our hearts so that we're like Jesus as we live this life. And we're sharing the good news of the kingdom with everyone we encounter. Friends, it's time to share the gospel. Instead of us leaving this place thinking about what has happened or what, what could have happened or Instead of leaving this place and, and thinking, heaven help me if the Cowboys are going to win or the Redskins are going to win. Instead of leaving this place and thinking what kind of dessert we're going to have at Ruby Tuesdays, let's think of how we can share the love of Jesus Christ with somebody and let them know that good night gravy, they can find life and hope and peace and mercy and forgiveness. It's, it's time for us to be urgent and stop lollygagging. We need to share the gospel. We need to pray for an intentional heart. We need to pray for an intentional heart. Listen, what Jesus said in verse 33. He said, take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is of Christ's return. Pray. 
pray, pray. Don't just pray for your problems to dissolve. Oh, yeah, that's good. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do that because Scripture tells us we need to bring our petitions to Him. But here's what we need to pray first and foremost, I believe. It's the kind of prayer that Jesus prayed. You know what Jesus prayed? Jesus prayed, oh, God, let me have my heart beating in the same cadence as yours. You know what we need to pray? We need to pray for our hearts to be focused in the same direction as God's heart. It changes our perspective. You know what prayer does? Prayer reorients our lives to view our circumstances, our relationships, our problems, our conflict, and our chaos. Prayer reorients our lives to see all those things through the lens of God's glory and His grace. To see our life as an instrument in His hands. To see our problems as an opportunity for His glory to shine. We need to pray every day diligently and persistently for an intentional heart so that we aren't caught napping when Jesus comes. As a church, we need to pray for an intentional heart. I I should go on in that one, but I'm not going to. I will say this about praying for an intentional heart as a church. When we pray for an intentional heart as a church, we stop worrying so much about carpets and pews. We stop worrying so so much about parking lots and grass or stained glass or whatever that is right there, that saxophone looking thing. (laughs) We pray for an intentional heart. We're not worried about those things. Everything else can fade. As a church, we become focused on what matters to God. So we need to pray for an intentional heart. The third thing is we need to wake up and we need to clean up. We need to wake up and we need to clean up. I I want us to end by looking at verses 34 and following. He said, uh, Jesus said, It's like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to uh, each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming in the evening at midnight at, at the crowing of the rooster in the morning lest suddenly he comes and he finds you sleeping and what I say to you I say to all watch and Jesus saying it's time to wake up you've lollygagged long enough it's time to wake up it's time to wake up and see that God has given you an assignment He's given me an assignment. He's given this church an assignment. Stop lollygagging around. It's like I was talking to my uh, oldest daughter yesterday, and she has some deadlines coming up for some of her classes in college, and she said, yeah, I haven't done it yet. And I said, well, don't you think it's about time? (laughs) Well, I'll get to it. She's lollygagging. Lollygagging with homework or assignments, that's one thing. Lollygagging, listen lollygagging with the important things that God has given us to be about and to do? 
Really? I mean, I understand not worrying about what a syllabus says, but my soul, when did we start treating God's word like it was just a syllabus written by human hands? And when did we start treating what God wants as nothing more than what maybe a professor or a teaching assistant might want? Oh, friends, it's time to stop lollygagging. We need to wake up. Wake up to the urgency of the day. Wake up to the urgency of the hour. Wake up to the things that God is calling us to be about and to do. Wake up. And to wake up means that we also clean up. Jesus is coming. How will he find you? How will he find your heart? It's time to clean up. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. He said, and do this knowing the time, that it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of the darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry or drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. You know what cleaning up means? It means we don't give ourselves an excuse to behave in a way that's contrary to the character of Christ. It means that we don't give ourselves an excuse to continue in a behavior that's contrary to the character of Christ. It means we make a commitment with our heart and with our life to confess our sin regularly, to deal with our sin radically. Today, I'm going to ask you to join me in feeling the urgency of this day. The urgency of Christ's commands. I'm going to ask you to commit with me to share the gospel. I'm I'm going to ask you to leave your seat and come down to this altar and talk to God, praying for an intentional heart. See, it's the easiest thing in the world for believers to to gripe and grouse and, and to gossip. That's what we do. But that's lollygagging. When we start talking to God, praying for an intentional heart, we won't have time for the gossiping and the griping and the grousing. Things will change for us. I'm going to ask you to come join me at this altar and pray for an intentional heart, not just for you, not just for me, but for our church. I'm going to ask you to come down here to this altar and join me and clean up to deal with the sin in your life, to pray that Jesus, by his spirit, would tear down any stronghold of sin that has taken root in your heart or in your life. I ask you to join me here at this altar and together 
we will do this knowing the time that it is high time to awake out of our sleep.